a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Romus with you. Today, we are going to be talking about fitness and standards within policing. For that, I have the CEO of FitForce, Jay Smith, on the program. Jay began his career in 1989 as the first Director of Physical Fitness and Health Maintenance Programs for the Massachusetts Criminal Justice Training Council. He then founded the Integrated Fitness Systems, or IFS for short, which we'll get into a little bit later. Jay has a Master of Science degree in Exercise Physiology, is a Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist with the National Strength and Conditioning Association, as well as a club coach with the United States Weightlifting Federation. He's also an author and has published several articles, chapters, and technical reports on fitness standards. Uh, there's much more that he's he's done, but that's just like a little snippet from the bio. So welcome, Jay. Thank you, sir. Good morning. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad we could get you on. Um, I guess the full disclosure, the mutual connection here is Matt Domiancic. So he was one of the prior guests I had on here, and he recommended you. Said uh, you got to chat with this guy. He's awesome. So uh, you came highly recommended. Matt's a good man. Um, we've uh, we've known each other probably twenty or more years. I'm gonna guess. Oh wow! Like okay. Like yeah, we have a we have a very very good friendship. Yeah, so you guys have act, like you work together. And before we uh, fired this up, this podcast, we had chatted offline. And um, yeah, you guys have quite a history together, right? Like you've done a bunch of work and and worked out together, I guess. Yeah, Matt. Uh, Matt approached me when he was working for a sheriff's department on the East Coast, and as he shared with your audience, it was after his disability um, started to kick in, and he was having some significant medical issues. Um, he was attached to the academy um, at that point, and was looking to develop their program. And was looking at vendors and resources and came across uh, me and my body of work. And it happened that I was going to be in Maryland, which is close to him, uh, working with a, a state police agency mm. down there. And I invited him up to take the class and for us to get to know each other a little bit. And, and we've been going great guns since. Awesome. Uh, over the years, we've been close friends, but I've also trained him long distance um, watched his progression from, I would say, the depths of his disability to where he is now, and, and thankfully, it's been it's been great fun to be a part of his journey too. Yeah, honestly, he's one of the most inspirational people I've talked to. I could chat with that guy for like hours. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, really good stuff. Uh, well, maybe we'll just talk start with you a bit, and you want to tell us about yourself. Uh, kind of growing up and how you got into the world of fitness, how you kind of got engulfed in this whole thing. Well, I, I mean, lots of boring details, right? I played sports growing up, um, did a lot of um, team sport type activities. And then in from high school into college, uh, more of the individualized stuff. I was doing some bicycle racing for a while and, and a lot of weight training and um, stuff like that. I, my bachelor's degree is in psychology, and I worked in the field for a long time, in high school and in college. 
And I initially thought I wanted to be a psychologist. And after working in the field in several different capacities and settings, I came to realize that most of them are nuts. And I just didn't really want to be that crazy psychologist. Um, so I started to shift gears and I thought, well, I'm, I've got this growing interest in the mind-body connection. And sports psychology seems like a pretty cool thing. This is back in the 80s. And there were some really interesting people doing some really interesting work, but it seemed like they didn't have all of the scientific or the, the physiological basis for what was going on and what worked. That wasn't like a big field back then, is what you're saying? What like, psychology was growing. Um, yeah. And there were some prominent names. So, you know, the, in the field of sports psychology, there were um, some folks doing a lot of stuff that was starting to get publicity. There was also on the medical side, the mind-body connection was kind of moving from the East, I think, to the Western medicine. People like Herbert Benson, who wrote the relaxation response, who actually I got to meet and spend time with eventually, um, was one of the pioneers. At one time, his book, The Relaxation Response, I think, was the second most published book in the world. And so it, it, there was this growing body of evidence. I had gotten interested in the martial arts and, and started to study some of that stuff. And uh, I think the East does a better job of connecting the two parts together. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, as soon as you said that, uh, like as soon as you started down that tr train of thought, I was thinking martial arts, 100%. I wanted to get more of the physiology. I thought that might give me a leg up in the field, and then I would go on for my, my doctorate in sports psychology. And that was the plan, but there's a, I have to learn how to say this phrase in Yiddish, because it's a Yiddish phrase, but the translation is, man plans, God laughs. And it kind of typifies my experience. So I had a plan, but I think there was a different plan for me. And the, by the time I got through with my master's in exercise physiology, my wife, we had a young family. My wife didn't really want to be poor anymore. And she didn't like the graduate school experience as much as I did. Um, so I, she... Oh, she, she asked me to look for a job. At the end of my graduate studies, there was a big job fair at the national conference where graduate students go to get jobs. And that job fair happened to be in Massachusetts. I was in graduate school in Kentucky at the time, and she really wanted to go home. I wanted to stay in Kentucky, but there was this conference in Boston that year, and I was sent with my marching orders, look for a job at home. So I did. And I applied for the one job that I knew I wouldn't get. There was in, in Massachusetts in 1988, a high profile training incident, the Western Massachusetts Police Training Academy. Mm -hmm. I was in graduate school at the time. And the, and the, the, the interest, there's a lot of backstory to this, but the, the interesting part of this was that Christmas 1988, I was en route to or from Kentucky to home with my family. And I was at a truck stop reading one of the local newspapers about this incident that had occurred at the police academy. And essentially what had happened in September 1988, the Criminal Justice Training Council, which was the agency tasked with conducting municipal police training then in Massachusetts, was using a training model that was used all over the world and, and in this country, which was, it was a modified stress approach to training. It was an indoctrination phase at the beginning of the training environment, 
And it was characterized by lots and lots of atypical physical activity, water hardening, so you didn't get much water. The rest of the equation that took place in, in Massachusetts was that in September, it was particularly hot and humid those days. And it was a particularly unfit group of police officer candidates that were in the academy. Okay. Reaching back a little bit further, the, the previous year, the agency had contracted with Dr. Tom Collingwood, who is kind of the grandfather of all of us in law enforcement fitness. He's the guy that put Cooper's Institute on the map with respect to law enforcement fitness in Dallas. He had been contracted by the, the agency to create a set of standards. And he presented those standards in 1988, the following year. The agency wanted to adopt those standards right away. A state agency that oversees the civil service process said you cannot um, implement them right away. There were too many people in the pipeline. You'll adversely impact their appointment process. You can use the test as an assessment for a year, implement it July 1, 1989. But for the next year, you can only assess people. So the agency agreed. They assessed class 12. And the standards that Tom created at the time were would be very familiar to a lot of people. They were age and sex adjusted, and they were based on Cooper's normative database, which was the old way of developing standards. Yeah. And it's really not developing. You're essentially arbitrarily picking a set of numbers. Um, but at the time, that was about the best that the industry had. And Tom was one of the leaders in the industry. So he, he proposed the 50th percentile would be a reasonable expectation to be able to do the job of a police officer. The agency's academy duration at the time was only about 15 weeks, I think. Working backwards from that 50th percentile for age and sex, he proposed that the agency could admit kids to the academy at the 40th percentile and then graduate at the 50th, and that would predict successful job performance or be related to successful job performance, I should say. So they assessed class 12, and of the 51 kids that were admitted to the class, because they didn't screen anybody out on fitness, 35 would not have been admitted because they would not have passed the 40th percentile. Wow. So it's a less than average fitness group of people. Yeah. They bump up against hot, humid conditions and a training environment that was characterized by lots and lots of physical activity in the beginning of the academy um, with this water hardening. Well, by day three of the academy, at that night, it was not a residential academy. It was a day, day school. At the end of the day, half the class ended up in the hospital. 16 kids needed some degree of dialysis to jumpstart their kidneys. Jeez. And one never left the hospital. He died subsequent to a liver transplant in November 1988. The agency adopted a new set of those standards as a result of an emergency vote of the council in November of 1988. But as you can imagine, this was all over the newspapers. In fact, the agency was on the front page of all of the major newspapers in Massachusetts for over 200 days. Wow. Imagine you are a staff instructor in this. You're doing what you've always done. And now every single day, your name is in the paper attached to this story that looks like great maltreatment and misguided efforts and everything. Well, December 1988, I'm at a truck stop reading this account, and I'm thinking, boy, what a mess. Glad I'm not in the middle of that. 
I was actually working with the local police department in Kentucky at the time. So I had a little bit of sensitivity to it. And I was a little bit interested in the story. I was also thankful that I wasn't in the middle of it. Fast forward to May 1989. By now, the Attorney General's office has investigated the agency. There have been a couple of independent committees that have been impaneled and investigated, and the governor's office investigated. A bunch of people lost their jobs. One did some time for some financial malfeasance. One of the reforms of all of that was the creation of this new statewide position that was going to oversee all of the fitness at the police academies in Massachusetts. Are all the academies like, so is this how it's structured now? Like all the academies learn from this one spot or? No, they're, so it's, their model is similar. The players and agencies have changed. Okay. But in Massachusetts, as in, as virtually every state in, in the states has an agency that oversees police training. Hmm. And they do it in one of a couple of different ways. They may certify programs. They may conduct the training. They may certify the individuals. But there's some variation. And the common acronym here is it's those are post agencies, peace officer or police officer standards and training. Okay. And so I think, to the best of my knowledge, almost all 50 of our states has a post council that operates in some capacity to oversee municipal training. Yeah. Sometimes the state police fall under their own jurisdiction, but that varies. Yeah, like up here, so in our province, the province of Alberta, um, we have one standard for the province, mm-hmm. and then just the federal police, the the RCMP, sure. they run their own stuff. <laughs> so, and it's it's even more disjointed down here, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. Um, there, there, and there is no central body in the country that oversees all of this, okay. any of this. It's all. Um, at the state level, most of it is statutorily mandated. So one of the so the model is that the agency at the time, and I believe they still do, either conduct the training themselves or they certify the training that occurs at another location. So a big department like the Boston Police Department has their own academy. At the time, at least, the training council certified the Boston Police Academy, and they did their own training at other locations. This was one of the agency's locations, and it was it was one of the Ma- Western Massachusetts training sites where it occurred. So the reform was to create this. The, the you said the title was the director of physical fitness and health maintenance programs. It was a brand new position, and they were going to over that person was going to oversee all of the physical fitness testing, the medical standards, and a whole bunch of other stuff. It was considered a major reform mm-hmm. of what became known as the Agwam incident. Agawam was the town where the academy was located. They started a national search, and they happened to start it at this conference that I was at. And I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for this job because I know I'm not going to get it. I'm, I'm only 25 years old. I have no law enforcement experience, and I have no political connections. But my wife really wants me to look for a job, so I'm going to throw my hat in the ring, and then I'll be able to go back and say, I, I tried. I looked for a job. I even applied. Well, I got an interview at the conference. They asked me to, while I was in town, come to the headquarters for a preliminary interview. My story's getting even better now, Nathan. I can go back to Kentucky and I can tell my wife, not only did I apply, but I got a second interview. Yeah. And I could stay in Kentucky where I really wanted to stay. (laughs) Well, that was my plan. I went back to Kentucky and I didn't expect to hear very much from them. I got a call and they, they said that I had made the final cut and, and they asked me to come back 
to Massachusetts for a final interview. And I sat at the end of a table that looked to be a half a mile long. And there were about 12 or 15 people arrayed around it because this was a big deal. And that was my introduction to law enforcement. So I completely fell into this. It was never part of my plan to be involved in this. And I have been involved in it since 1989 when I started. I went to work for the agency in July, July 1, uh, 1989. And that's how I started my career. I had gotten my uh, strength and conditioning certification, which was interesting for them. Um, and that was, I think, part of what sold it. But honestly, in looking back, I don't know why I got the job. There was no reason for me to get it. I had, I had no real experience. Um, I had a whole lot of confidence. Some of it might have yeah. been misplaced, but I had a whole lot of confidence. And I was willing to, I was always the young kid in a group of older people, whether it was work or sports or school, graduated high school young. I, I was always jumping in to the deep end. And so I thought, okay, I'll jump into the deep end. And I did. Maybe that lends to uh, like maturity and stuff earlier, right? So maybe they see like, wow, this guy's pretty young, but he's pretty mature. So that, you know, that speaks volumes to somebody's character as well. So maybe that's what really turned them on to that. I, 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 I have to agree with you to a certain extent. It's funny though. When I look at, when I look at pictures of myself <laughs> at that point, I, I, one of my, one of my oldest and very best friends that I grew up with, his brother was a couple of years older than us. Um, and he went through the, he went through one of our academies when I was just starting. And I have a picture of my refrigerator of the three of us. Um, Bobby's graduating from the academy and he's got his infant son in his arms and I'm standing there and both of these guys are six, six, and I, I'm not even close to six, six, <laughs> but I have my suit on and I'm an important person at this support academy at this important graduation with my friends that I grew up with. And honest to God, Nathan, I look like I was 12. Yeah. <laughs> I literally look like I was 12 years old. I, I just, I sometimes I'm a little bit amazed, um, at what I what I think I pulled off, but it was, it was an indoctrination. Um, I, I got to work with some amazing people under some very, very difficult circumstances. And it really forged me in my career. Mm, okay. um, I spent eight years there. I, I worked with some very influential people that, that changed my thinking about policy, public policy, because it was a, I was in a management position and we had policy making responsibilities. In fact, we, I, I was part of developing some code of Massachusetts regulations, which are statutory mandates. Um, I oversaw a bunch of statewide programs and weathered a lot of challenges in that time. We went through a lot of growing pains and we went from being the bad kids on the block because we killed this kid in training to being a model program and going around the country and saying, look, we are actually a model program. Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes like a bad thing happening Yep. for people to go, okay, we need to fix this. Like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that in policing, yep. <laughs> unfortunately. And it, it's interesting because the condition that the kids had is a term that you probably are familiar with. And a lot of the listeners will be familiar with, but after three days of hard activity, continuous activity with very little water and poor levels of fitness, the kids were in the bathroom at the end of the day and they were comparing notes because they were all peeing different colors of 
shades of red and brown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what prompted them to go to the hospital. Well, they developed, a, they had developed on mass a condition called rhabdomyolysis, mm-hmm. which is the breakdown of, pro, of the protein that constitutes muscle and infiltrates the kidneys. The young man that died may have had a pre-existing condition, but when the kidneys start to shut down, the liver has to take over his liver shut down. He died subsequent to a liver transplant in November of that year. But 16 kids needed some degree of dialysis to jumpstart their kidneys after three days of activity. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of hard to argue it's not the program at that point. <laughs> so the um, there was an outbreak, they call them outbreaks, I don't know why, because it's not a pandemic. There were outbreaks of rhabdomyolysis about the same time at the New York Police, uh, I'm sorry, the New York City Fire Department Academy. And so an individual can actually develop acute rhabdomyolysis. It can come on rapidly. They had an arduous entrance test to get on the fire department at the time. They had an outbreak um, there where I think there were two or three people that were hospitalized. Memory is failing me a little bit as to whether or not there were any deaths associated with that. But it didn't get nearly the attention that Massachusetts got. Really? You'd think even, especially in New York, just such a, I don't know, big media frenzy there all the time. So, well, and you said you stayed on for about eight years. I was there for eight years with, with the state. And okay. um, then I struck out on my own. That Actually, they, they helped me. I was looking to get out and they eliminated my position, which helped me even more. Um, <laughs> we went from, and this is kind of a cautionary tale. We, we went from the depths to the heights to thinking they didn't need the position anymore. Um, and it coincided with every single year that I was there, the state agency that oversees the civil service process wanted to take back the testing to get into the academy. And every year, the executive director that was in position at the time fought it, except the last guy that was in that seat when I left. And he succumbed to the, the pressures that were exerted against him. And he gave up both the physical fitness testing to get into the academies as well as the medical screen. And my argument was that academy staff, the, the cadre of instructors now are going to need even more support because they've had eight years mm-hmm. of this support. And now you're going to make them do their job without any of the information or the assistance that the program that we created would provide. So why would they want to take it back though? Like what's the, what's the purpose of that? Um, it's a good good question. I mean, the, the civil service process here is usually a written test, but it can involve physical testing. And I guess to somebody, it seemed seamless for them to, to retain both the written testing and the physical testing. Unfortunately, there was also, at the time, this big shift as to what should tests look like. And they, they adopted a job performance test hmm. that essentially doesn't screen anybody out. Oh, okay. So... As low as the standards were. Yeah, like usually I see when, you know, and this is the same up in Canada too, but like if all of a sudden there's like a hard change in standards or somebody's like, no, I want that now, it's usually like a political play or uh, we have recruiting issues. So all of a sudden I'm going to change something so I can, like you're saying, nobody's getting screened out. It's like, oh, but look, we have all these bodies now. It's like, yeah, but they're not physically qualified to do the job. So yeah, it's kind of interesting, like the the stories behind these things. And it gets played out a lot. 
it's it's not at all uncommon as you just said you you guys have seen you see it up there as well um sometimes it's an incident as you said sometimes it's there's a need for a reform now i think we are dealing with the um pressures that are being exerted because we don't have candidates and the candidates that we have and we were talking about this a little bit um earlier we uh, the candidates that they that are coming to us are not in good shape and so there's a lot of pressure coming from a lot of areas to mm. look at what are we doing to screen mm. people out and it raises a lot of important questions about how do we create standards yeah and so just before we do get into the standards part um i do want to just ask about like this integrated fitness systems because you created this pretty early in your career from what i was reading on the bio you kind of went from the, doing this uh director spot uh to creating this so what is IFS and, and how did that come about? It was a it was a doing business as it's a designation that we have here. So you can it's it's an informal business structure called the DBA, doing business as. Okay. When I left state service, I had looked around at a couple of different options. I got involved in the creation of this entity called FitForce. Human Kinetics is the at least I believe they still are. They were at one time the world's largest publisher of health and fitness related information. So if you have a textbook or a journal that's fitness related, there's a good chance it comes from human kinetics. Tom Collingwood, who I mentioned, um, I had worked with Tom when I, after I got to the criminal justice training council, I worked with him because he had created the tests and standards. And then the agency hired him to create a couple of more sets of tests and standards for other constituents that we had. At the time, the agency also worked with corrections and parole. And so Tom and I got to know each other over the years. And Tom, a small community, Tom was good friends with a publisher at HK. Reiner Martins was the founder of the company. Tom had been with Cooper's Institute, went out on his own, was doing tests and standards, still using Cooper's resources. But there were there were some areas where he felt the the police community wasn't being properly served, and so he convinced Reiner with his resources as a publishing company that perhaps he could jump in and fill some of that void mm. with the information and delivery systems. So he became the technical advisor to Human Kinetics for the creation of this FitForce entity, and as they were developing it, they were looking for somebody to run it. Tom wasn't going to run it; he was just going to be the uh, the technical advisor. So my name came up, another guy's name from out West came up. We both turned it down and, but we stayed involved in the creation of it. Bob Hoffman was uh, retiring from, had just retired from the army, had a brilliant career as an army ranger and had a fitness background. And he jumped into the mix and we all helped to create this fit force entity, which became a, a training entity. There was information that was available. We also created tests and standards, and we did that together under the umbrella of human kinetics. Okay. Well, I was doing that while I was at the training council. When I left the training council in um, 97, eight years later, I had this affiliation with HK and human kinetics. I was part of their national faculty and advisory team, and I struck out on my own. I was. I had looked a little bit for work with different um, companies, and I decided, I think I want to try working for myself. So I created integrated fitness systems. I had become uh, pretty involved in use of force training when I was at the training council. 
mostly through a private entity that no longer exists under actually exists under a different name. Um, but I was certified through the state and I was certified through this private vendor. I did a lot of use of force training and some firearms and some other stuff, but it was mostly from a fitness perspective because I've never been a police officer from a, from a practical, from a training and from a functional standpoint, the relationship between fitness and these other disciplines, Mm -hmm. physical skills areas is inarguable. And I wanted to try to contribute to that as much as I could. So integrated fitness systems was my first business entity. I was working for HK as a contractor. I was doing some other work, did some work for the federal government as a private individual. And I started integrated fitness systems and, and I continued to do use of force training for this private company. And I was doing fitness stuff. It was an umbrella for me to be able to reach out. All right. Tom had his own business entity. And then, uh, so I left state service in 97. We went live with FitForce. I believe we started creating it in 93. I think we went live in 95. By 1998, one of my concerns about um, human kinetics and FitForce was that they were expecting to make too much money out of this entity from law enforcement. I just didn't think it was going to work. That was why I didn't jump at the job that they offered me. It turned out that I was correct in my assumption because by 1998, I was negotiating with them to acquire FitForce from Human Kinetics. They wanted to see it continue. So I got the bargain basement price um, for FitForce. And by 1998, 99, I was running FitForce activities. Okay. I had integrated fitness systems, I had FitForce. Tom had fitness intervention technologies and Bob eventually left HK and he started his own entity and was working with a couple of other contractors. So we had this consortium of different entities and a lot of people were trying to understand how do they relate to each other. And I was the kid in the group. Tom has been retired for a long time. Um, Tom's in his 80s. And unfortunately, we lost Bobby five or six years ago uh, to a brain cancer. Um, Bobby would would now be, I think, um, 73 or 74. Quite the age range. Yeah. And and we were all very close. Tom has been my mentor for 30 years or more. And Bobby was a mentor for me, too. Um, I really have been blessed with the people that I, I have been able to be associated with. In any event, I eventually incorporated FitForce in Massachusetts. So it is an S-Corp in the, it registered in the state. And it's been the sole entity. I dropped Integrated Fitness Systems a long time ago. And a lot, uh, uh, with, when that happened, I also essentially stopped doing use of force training. Um, I did it for private entities once in a while, private individuals. But um, I wasn't doing any more cop use of force training once I dropped IFS. Fitness just became the primary focus. I have always relied on it, and it has informed an awful lot of what I do, including coaching sports. But mm. the the primary thrust of what I've done for the last 20, 25 years, I think, is just it's it's mostly fitness. Okay, one of the things too, like so, you're just, you mentioned a few times, like I'm not a police officer, but I'm doing these uh, fitness things and, and use of force. 
Do you ever find when you were first getting into this, or probably less so now, but when you were first starting out, did you get any kind of pushback like from <laughs> law enforcement agencies saying, this guy's not a cop? What does he know? Like that kind of stuff. Did you ever run into that? I've been getting pushback since I started. Nathan. <laughs> okay. Ever since I started. Um, it was actually my baptism because when I went to work for the state, the training model before I started was that it was mostly state police, although in some locations there were municipal officers in charge of the training. And one of the reforms after the Yaguan incident, along with the creation of my position, was that the, the uniform staff who were not employees of the agency, they were employees of their own agencies, were going to be um, subordinated more, that the civilians mm-hmm. would, would be taking a more primary role because it was a civilian agency that used these as contracting employees. So I, some of my funniest stories are from the very beginning of my career when I was this snot-nosed little, looked like I was 13 years old, going to have to go in and tell these troopers that that's not how we're doing yeah. business anymore. This is how you're going to do it. Um, in fact, talk about a setup. My very first meeting where I was introduced, I, w- I had been on the job a week or two back in 1980, uh, 1989. The executive director at the time wanted to introduce me to all of the fitness instructors and all of the academy directors. So we had a big meeting. And the way he presented me was, I'm the sh- this is the new sheriff in town, and you're going to do what he tells you to do. <laughs> and, and I'm trying to keep my serious face on and still try to win people over. <laughs> I, I won't say his name, but there was a, an old guard instructor who had been with a police department in, in the Boston area. And he was a, he was a mountain of a guy and had been around and fought in world war ii and was a marine he was sitting in the front row and he stood up and he had the biggest hands <laughs> and he had giant fingers and he started waving this finger like this he wanted he said i don't want to be disrespectful but who the hell do you think you are come and i'm i'm listening to this and then i can't hear it anymore because i'm mesmerized by this giant finger that's going <laughs> up and down. That was the beginning of it. So yes, the answer is yeah. I have I've I butted heads with that for a long time. But from a the way that I I I resolved this way. Um, although I did train recruits for a long time and I love training recruits. I stuck to teaching fitness. I would help with the use of force stuff. But I wouldn't be the lead instructor. There are some things that I think, if you're going to teach somebody who's just entering a career like law enforcement, how to defend or control or otherwise impose your your physical will under the color of law, you come from somebody who's actually done it. Yeah. Yeah. Over the years, I spent a lot of time in the martial arts. There was a lot that I could bring to the equation from a motor skills perspective, um, from from a knowledge base that I would add, but I wouldn't lead the instruction. And it wasn't a concession as much as it was an acknowledgement of what I think are the healthier dynamics. There are there are civilians that do police training and they spend an awful lot of time button heads. 
with sworn personnel. And I just never saw the point. Well, I think the way you're describing it is a little bit of humility, maybe, um, and, and knowing kind of like, well, this is this is what I'm good at, and what you know what I can explain. And if I don't quite know or I don't quite have the experience in this other field, like you're saying, the use of force stuff, then yeah, someone else can be the lead on. It. I can still be part of it. Um, but I also think too, kind of like you mentioned before, the whole mind body part. Um, bringing that in like so when you're talking about the fitness i think that's something that's missing from the standards now just from what i hear about training police training and right across canada and then even in the u.s some of the stuff i I'm, i follow um i think uh, that's a huge component that's missing because you're trying to teach people about perseverance and like pushing through the suck and just grinding it out a lot of the times and i think like those kind of things that can come from it doesn't matter if it's a police officer or a civilian because there's a lot of civilians that are high-level athletes, right? And they go through some insane things. But I think that's something that's kind of missing nowadays. So, I agree. agree. I think that the for the most part, our training just is not very good either. We don't have enough contact time. The content of the material in, in most instances is not very good. So... Yeah, there's a little bit of needing to to provide an important um, set of skills or knowledge uh, to a group, but I think it, it's it's clearly important that we also acknowledge that there are other parts to this equation, right? Yes, yeah. you're going to apply force. Um, it's an emotional thing. You might we get an even then, 30 years ago, we were getting a lot of people in the academy that had never never been in a fight, never been in a confrontation. Yeah. Um, they have their own internal emotional environment that they've got to deal with and try to overcome as they're, they're trying to both learn this skill and see themselves in a position where they can actually administer it or, or perform it. And so there, there are so many levels. And unfortunately, there are still so many areas where it needs improvement. My small part of the world of it was that I just felt like if I'm going to train people, I would prefer to train instructors in use of force because I think if you're going to be an instructor. You, you need to be more open-minded. You need mm-hmm. to be willing to take what may appear to come from a disparate area or pull stuff together because you've assumed the responsibility to instruct other people. And in order to do that, I think you really have to be open to as much as possible we also have to discern what makes sense and what doesn't yeah but we can't ask a kid in an academy who's just thinking they want to become a cop and they have to learn this that that they should be the ones that have to decide nope i don't think that's going to work now you might have somebody that comes from a background that that can do that but for the most part we don't get that like i don't know what the average age is of an uh an applicant or somebody who makes it into class but I'm going to guess it's like mid twenties just from some of the people I see coming through now. But even by then, like you might've been done university. You probably have had at least one job. I know up here, like at least Edmonton, we're right next door to one of our largest army bases. So we get a lot of people jumping over from the military into law enforcement. They got quite the life experience coming into this. So yeah, it is, it's hard to gauge exactly like what, you know, you got to speak to a really wide, breadth of experience and and life skills when they come through 
one thing I wanted to ask was, uh, when it comes to fitness standards and the programs that you develop, so like you, when you go in, uh, and this, so the audience kind of has an idea of what you do, you go in and develop the standards that a police service is going to use for their fitness testing, or do you do like a, a more holistic kind of thing? Cause I know there is a component where you go to court and you can back up some of the stuff. So test development falls under a couple of different headings. And in the academic setting, it's called industrial organizational psychology. That's the discipline that is largely responsible for the creation of tests. Now, those can be emotional, intellectual, psychological, and physical. My opinion of most IOs is that they don't do a good job with the physical, but the test development and how you validate a test falls under that rubric. Here in the States, in the 70s, Congress passed the Uniform Guidelines, which are essentially the, they, they were the template for how do you create a test. We started to have, by then there was um, a lot of litigation around employment law. And here in the States, the Civil Rights Act 1964 was passed, which was considered the the watershed um, act that created equal opportunity is it defined activities that were no long that were no longer legal you couldn't base an employment requirement on race creed color national origin couldn't discriminate against somebody in many areas there was an employment title including employment when you make those make decisions based on those things those characteristics there were a lot of tests that were in place that were eventually challenged under Title VII of the original Civil Rights Act. And many of them were intuitive or they were borrowed from the military, for instance. Hmm. Because for many years, we had a mandatory draft. Talk about who's coming to the police academy now. For, for many decades, we had people coming that had matriculated from the military to law enforcement. They liked the military life. Well, they chose the paramilitary life and they went from the army or, or some other branch to law enforcement. Some of the tests that were used in the military also find their way into civilian law enforcement. Yeah. But they had an effect on protected classes that were so defined under the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And so, for instance, you could not make a decision based on sex. Well, emails are smaller in stature than males and without getting into all of the legal definitions and the requirements if enough females are adversely impacted which is the legal term by the use of a test then the employer or the entity conducting the test may have to now defend that test mm-hmm. and in order to defend the test here and I believe this, that many of these concept, legal concepts are common between us and Canada. You have to prove that that requirement is related to the job. Yeah. And so there are there are legal definitions here or concepts, and the terms that we use are that the the, the requirement has to be demonstrably related for the position in question. That means you have evidence. You don't say, "Well, we grabbed this test because the police department over here is using it. We're a police department, so we're going to use their test." That's not demonstrably job related. So the first element is that the standard has to be, the requirement has to be demonstrably job related for the position in question. And it has to be consistent with business necessity. 
people use these two phrases in the same sentence as if they're synonymous and they're not. They have different elements to them. But for instance, business necessity suggests that fitness, physical fitness is so important that to the job that you can't get into the training environment until you demonstrate a reasonable level of it. Well, I find that part kind of interesting in that you, okay, so you get into the job, you have to meet a certain standard, but once you're in the job, you don't really have to maintain it like <laughs> to be operational. And, and that's exactly where business necessity fails in law enforcement. Because as you just said, virtually every entity has got an entrance requirement and almost none have an employment requirement for continued employment. Do you know any that do? Oh, yeah. Outside of specialized units? Like outside of, you know, if you're in tactical or, or whatever, but for like, say, a general patrol constable, is there an organization that does? Yes, we have a few agencies that we've worked with over the years that do. Hmm. Um, okay. And frankly, it's, it's if you do not have, empl- if you do not have uh, incumbent standards, there's a good chance you're not going to be able to defend your applicant standards, at least in the courts here. Hmm. The difference is that we just, we don't have a lot of smart attorneys that can litigate this thing. So. You know, why aren't more agencies challenged in this is beyond me. And I don't want to tip our hand on that one. But um, the fact of the matter is that you have to have those pieces. So that fitness element, as you've said, should be a part of their entire career. Going back to your question, though, about how we create the tests and standards, we have to comply with uniform guidelines, which are dated. They've, They've never been modified. In, in this country, and, and these organizations also have influence in the world, the, the Society of Industrial Organizational Psychologists, as well as the American Psychological Association, have continually updated their standards for how do you create and validate a test. We comply with all of those things when we go into an agency to create a test. So I mentioned Tom and Tom Collingwood and the way we used to adopt normative data as standards. It was an arbitrary decision. We think this is reasonable. And the reason that we did that was we didn't have a good way of linking the job with physical fitness. We knew the job required it. You can watch what a police officer does from a physical perspective and say, yep, that's muscular strength. There's some muscular endurance, need explosive power. But how much was always the question. Mm. So there was this arbitrary decision. It seems reasonable to expect average fitness. Well, here in the States, we had a number of laws that were passed that started to chip away at this and and the way that these things were defined. And so we are at a point, and we have been for over 20 years, where what should govern this to comply with both the statutory and regulatory elements the academic elements and the practical elements is that the demands of the job should dictate what the standards look like. Yeah. And so that's the approach that I take. That's the approach that, that my company takes. We look at the physical demands of the job. We characterize them based on the people that are in the job. It's not my opinion. My opinion doesn't mean anything. We go in and we ask, it's called a job analysis. You would go into your department and ask all of your sworn personnel if we what do you do and we would give them lists of physical tasks and we would ask them to rate the tasks according to how often they do them how important they are that they be done 
correctly and what would happen if they could not do that okay. in the line of duty. That information, we then apply statistical analysis to and we present the findings to you guys, the people that do the job. So I want to talk to people that do the job, train others, supervise others to do the job. That helps to further validate the findings. And then together we create depictions of the job. It's called the job content test. We like to use scenarios where we put a bunch of stuff together. And these are real world situations that officers in the department may encounter that are emergency and time sensitive in nature. Put those together so it may be responding to an active shooter, maybe one of the scenarios. And in that, we take the information from the job analysis and we might populate it with distances run and obstacles overcome and objects pushed and pulled. It could be victims or doors or other things. And we create these scenarios that are depictions of the job. We get people to agree, yep, this looks right. And there's usually two or three. And then when we go back to your department, we test everybody on those scenarios, the job content tests. And we also put them through a physical fitness test battery. And these are just, these are valid tests from the industry of muscular strength and endurance and explosive power and aerobic capacity and anaerobic capacity. So the data set would be Nathan's going to come in and with a test group in the morning, he's going to do a physical fitness test battery and we're going to get his results. And then in the afternoon, we're going to put him through these job simulation tests and we're going to time you. And we're going to rate your performance. And that becomes one data set. And then we collect it for a whole bunch of people. And one of the methods of test validation is called criterion related validity. In a criterion related test or study, you have two tests. You have a predictor test, that's the physical fitness test, and you have a job content or a, it's called the criterion measure of job performance. And the goal is to find out, is there a level of physical fitness on the predictor test that predicts with a high degree of certainty successful job performance on the job content test? And we have thresholds for that. And we want to be able to predict with a very high degree of certainty because the implications of this are that if you deny somebody could otherwise do the job, then you are discriminating. Yeah. And if you allow people in that cannot do the job, then you are negligent. Yeah. So there are two sides to this coin. And this is an interesting question that we, we pose. If you have a test with a standard, how many potential outcomes are there? Got a test with a standard. Yeah. How many potential outcomes are there? Obviously, the two, like you're talking. Pass or fail, right? Yep. Well, in a predictive test, this comes from the field of medicine. And this was this was one of the things that Tom brought our testing into the 21st century. With a medical test, and we heard all about this a couple of years ago with all of the tests for the 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 bug that invaded the world. We have four people. We administer you. We administer the test to you. You have the bug, and the test says you have the bug. I take the test. I don't have it, and the test says I don't have it. Well, in a perfect world, it's going to be one of those two outcomes. But Joe over here, he has it. The test said he didn't have it. And Sally, she doesn't have it, but the test said she did have it. 
Mm-hmm. So in a predictive test, as in the field of medicine, for instance, there are four potential outcomes. True positives and true negatives are the easy ones. But sometimes the test misclassifies you as having it when you don't. Yeah. Or not having it when you're somewhere in between. You cannot escape this because no test is perfect. The condition that we're talking about is the physical ability to be able to do the job. So I want to be able to predict with a high degree of certainty that if you can do this, then you can do the job. And I want to also have a high degree of certainty that if you cannot do this, you cannot do the job. Now, the beauty of this is, that, and this is the part that falls on deaf ears, people that are making these decisions, we're not talking about an immutable characteristic. Your ability to generate force can be changed with an intervention. Yeah, You don't do push-ups. You can't pass the push-up test. But all things being equal, if I put you on a training program, you can do push-ups now and you can pass the test. Unlike height, age, used to be that you couldn't change your sex, these characteristics are immutable. But the ability to generate force, sustain force, to maintain work, those are all changeable. And it takes an, it just takes a little bit of an intervention to be able to do that. That kind of puts me on, so we're just coming up to the end of the time, but I want to make sure we talk about this because I think we're right on that track. Um, so if you look at things like having females in tactical units, this is a conversation you see right across Canada, I'm sure it comes up in the US. Uh, how do you create a standard that says, okay, we need this has to be the whatever the bare minimum, the basic, or something that everybody has to achieve, and it's non-discriminatory on all these different bases, and it's still going to be acceptable because any of the female members that I've ever talked to that have been told to go, you know, trial for a tactical unit, any of the ones I know specifically uh, have always felt like they're just getting told to do that because it's tokenism. You know, someone's just trying to use them as the promotion example, whatever it might be, but they want to get there on their own merit and validity. So how do you create that kind of a standard for somebody? So the the first part of your question was, um, how do we deal with the, the issue of discrimination? It is the agency's responsibility to discriminate. Yeah. Lawfully. Mm -hmm. So what is lawful? Lawful is that it is based on the job. It is not based on your sex. It is not based on your height. So the first part of that is that we have to come up with a consensus. What does it take to, to successfully perform the duties of a SWAT operator? Well, we have to know what, first of all, we have to know what a SWAT operator does. And then we have to know what is effective. Because being able to carry a ram to a door to breach it, is a task that may be required. If you weigh 100 pounds and you're wearing 40 pounds of turnout gear and you're carrying a 40-pound ram and it happens so slowly that you can't get to the door in time, then you're not able to successfully do the job. So there has to be an understanding of what is the job. And then you have to depict that. And there has to be a consensus. What is acceptable performance? And if you do that correctly, then it's not the test that is the source of the discrimination. It's the job. Yeah. And we have to assume that at least at this level, not everybody can do this job. 
there's a reason why we don't have a lot of female firefighters because the turnout gear for a firefighter is about 60 pounds before it gets wet or you put a tool in their hand. Now it might weigh a little bit less if you're on a small instead of a triple XL, but the fact of the matter is that these are absolutes. And so if we have, if we have depicted the job correctly, then again, the job is the source of the discrimination, which is lawful. It's not the test because the test is accurate. Problem is when we try to overcome that by saying, well, we just need more females in this job. No, we need more people that can do this job. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And it's bang on. So that's the challenge. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of jurisdictions, SWAT tests have become kind of parodies of fitness tests. They're just, they're over the top. And, and I think a lot of times they get away with it because, frankly, it's not mandatory that you be a SWAT operator. So generally, it's not subject to the same kinds of challenges that you see under most of the employment statutes or the anti-discrimination statutes. Um, the other part of it is that I think that oftentimes they just don't want to challenge it. So they're left to their own devices. It doesn't mean that the test is good. You know, some of these tests are more about how can we outdo each other? That's not really what a test should look like. So I'm not going to justify every SWAT test that exists. But if we're going to do it validly and appropriately, then it has to come from an, an acute understanding of what does the job entail? And then what does successful performance of that job look like? Okay. Now. If you can train up to that level, then that's fine. Retake the test. So that's where policies, you know, the, the creation of the test is one thing, but the policy that governs how you implement the test is also, my experience in, in defending agencies is policies are much more likely to get them in trouble than tests because we do some really stupid things around policy. <laughs> yeah. Um, it could be completely, the challenges could be completely avoided if they had a different policy in place. And that's part of the other stuff that we provide um, is support, not just in the test creation, but in the implementation of the policies and procedures. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'll encourage people to kind of check out your website because uh, I like the, uh, a lot of the different parts on there. One thing that we're, we won't have time for today, so I'll have to get you back on, um, and is talking about the expert testimony part because offline we had a, a good conversation about that. I found that. I find that part very interesting. Um, but uh, I do want to give you time at the end here to just say how people can follow you and find your work. Like, where's the best place to to get a hold of you and, and the company? I appreciate that. The, our our website is fitforceinc. Inc. F-I-T-F-O-R-C-E-I-N-C.com. Um, that's the best way to get in touch with me. I've got a, a link there. It says info at fitforceinc.com, and that'll dump into my email. Our contact information is also the telephone number. And there's a bunch of information about the services that we provide for our clients. And I'm more than happy to. I love um, when I've had the opportunity to work in the provinces. I love it up there. Would welcome that opportunity. We are national in scope. So I, I have worked in um, not all, but almost all of the states in the country. And from very small agencies to our um, Department of Defense and our federal agencies. Um, and we do, we do some work with private entities as well. So 
This is not just a public sector service, but it is a public safety service that we generally provide. And there's a host of host of services that we will provide under this. We call it physical readiness solutions. And there, are, there is a, a whole host of them, including training and job analysis and policy and procedure and arbitration and litigation support. Awesome. Well, man, I, honestly, I, I thought the conversation was really good. The part where you're explaining about how the programs are developed and the standards are developed. Um, it's not a conversation I've ever heard anyone else have. So I'm glad we could get that out there for listeners. Um, yeah, definitely got to have you back on here sooner than later. Um, I'll just remind people, give a like, listen, share, uh, spread the podcast. Let's help people out, um, get this information out there. So uh, thanks for coming on, Jay. If you hang on for two seconds, I'll say bye offline. Appreciate it. Thank you, Nathan.